Good morning, everyone. I have to apologise. A couple of weeks ago, I lost the glasses that I normally preach with. So if I'm looking at you over the top of these ones, which are my previous prescription, it's not because you're in trouble. Uh, It's just because I can't see you otherwise. Um, Delma's alluded to the fact there are a couple of agendas before us this morning. On the one hand, we're acknowledging uh, Paul's appointment to the position of college principal, which we're all terribly excited about. Um, It's appropriate then that we might open God's word looking for uh, some encouragement or even perhaps some challenge in relation to that. But as Delma said, we're also in the middle of our regular chapel series going through Mark's Gospel. Chapter 8 is the chapter before us this week. As faculty, we're also trying to uh, model the sort of preaching that might be effective in a congregation. And so keeping all of those agendas together, uh, you might like to... Uh, Just keep those things in mind as we unpack the passage. The professional photographer Dick Eisenminger loves to startle audiences at photography conventions by telling them that he has the world's most advanced camera. He says, and I quote, it automatically aims and focuses in a fraction of a second, automatically adjusts aperture in even less time. The colour film on which it records is stereoscopic and self-renewing after every exposure. The development time is measured in hundreds of a second. Of course, it doesn't take people long to realise that he's talking about the human eye. They're amazing things, our eyes. Did you know that in the dark, the eye will increase sensitivity 100,000 times? Your eye, no bigger than a ping-pong ball, has so many millions of tiny electrical connections that it can handle 1.5 million messages simultaneously. The retina itself has 137 million special light-sensitive cells that gather information and then sends those signals to the brain at about 700 kilometres per hour. And we take all of that for granted every morning when we wake up and open our eyes. Or if you've been up late the night before, working on assignments, half open your eyes. We rarely give a second thought to the almost miraculous process that allows us to see. Of course, that's not true for everyone, though. Many people struggle with eyesight issues. Not everyone can take it for granted. In Jesus' day, blindness was a problem of epidemic proportion, partly because people lacked the medical knowledge to treat basic ophthalmic conditions. They knew nothing of ocular hygiene, and they had to contend with the relentless and pitiless glare of the Middle Eastern sun. And in the days before Social Security and disability payments, the blind were totally dependent on their family to feed them, to house them, or else they had to try and survive by begging on the street where you could imagine they were totally at the mercy of others. So there was a certain desperation about life for someone born blind in Jesus' day. And in that context, we turn to this morning's gospel passage. When I sat down to prepare this sermon and just read through the passage that first time, The first thing that struck me was the way the text says some people brought a blind man to Jesus and begged him to touch him. And I thought, some people brought a blind man. Who were these people? Were they friends? Were they family? Obviously, they cared enough about the man to approach Jesus on his behalf. 
They were even willing to beg Jesus on his behalf. It's very understated in the text, but what a lovely act of kindness for those people to put themselves out in the service of another. There's probably a whole sermon in that alone, the infectious nature of kindness. It's such a simple thing. If you want to start changing the world, then just be kind to people. Mark Twain once penned the words, kindness is a language that even the deaf can hear and even the blind can see. So these people acted very kindly toward the blind man as they led him to Jesus. And as the blind man let go of their hand and in turn took Jesus' hand, Jesus led him somewhere and in doing so I think also showed significant kindness. It says that Jesus led him out of the village and away from the crowd. Why would he do that? Well, the simplest and most obvious reason is he didn't want the blind man to be overwhelmed by leering faces of the crowd when his sight was restored. And it's interesting to me that before this man could really connect with Jesus, he first had to be willing to be led by him. Very vulnerable thing for a blind man to be led away by the hand of a stranger. And yet he showed himself willing to let Jesus lead him. There's probably another whole sermon there. What a challenge to us. I wonder, Paul, if there's anything for you in your new role in that little insight. To what degree do we allow Jesus to lead us each day? Even if, like the blind man, we aren't really sure where he's taking us. Do we make time? Do we exercise the discipline that allows us to centre our lives in Christ so we can be led by him? At the end of the day, we might ask, do we sing with Frank Sinatra, Old Blue Eyes, I did it my way? Or do we join the refrain of Sister Act and sing, I will follow him? This blind man followed Jesus and in that private environment, a very unusual thing happens. It appears that one of Jesus' miraculous healings misfired. The text says that Jesus spat on his hands and then touched the man's eyes with the spittle. Now, there's nothing particularly unusual or mystical in that. Saliva was thought to have healing properties, and still does in many cultures. That's not surprising. What's the first thing you do when you cut your finger? You stick it in your mouth. What does a dog do when it's wounded? It licks the wound. So again, for the benefit of the blind man, Jesus used something that symbolized healing. He used his saliva to communicate to the man, I'm going to be doing something of significance now. The man couldn't see what was happening, so Jesus stimulated his faith with the sound. (laughs) Sorry. And the touch, the sensation of saliva on his eyes. And then Jesus asked him, can you see anything? And the man replied, yes, but the people look like trees walking around. So Jesus laid his hands on the man a second time and then everything seemed to be fine. Now, who knows exactly what was happening here? Did Jesus make a mistake? Was he having an off day? Some people suggest the man had two problems which Jesus healed one after the other. The first was a problem with his eyes, his physical sight, And the second was a malfunction in the visual interpretive center in his brain, which may be overthinking things a little bit. 
Others think he deliberately performed the miracle that way to perhaps teach his disciples something about the need to persist and persevere. And there may be something in that. I was in a shop the other day and they had a sign in the window. It's one of those places where they put up a thought for the week. And the sign said, ordinary person equals great person who stopped trying too soon. Reminders about persistence rarely go astray. Paul, maybe there's something in that for you as well. You just never know. But there is another option. Maybe Jesus was creating a living metaphor in his action. He wanted to show that just as the blind man's physical sight came to him in stages, so it also takes time to develop spiritual sight. He wanted to demonstrate that an understanding of God never arrives perfectly and instantly for us. Discovering who God is and what he's like for most of us at least, is a progressive thing. It happens in stages. And the very next story that Mark places beside this one, I think, confirms that theory. The next thing we're told is that Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. Now, the most northern point in the Promised Land in Old Testament times, Paul, I hope I've got this right, was a little village called Dan, nestled at the foot of a 9,200-foot-high perpetually snow-capped mountain. And it comes down that mountain to the plain, not in a gradual slope, but in quite a sheer cliff. And out of that cliff, inexplicably, a river flows. There's no cave or cavern or um, uh, reason why the river should just appear at the edge of the cliff. There must be cracks in the rock and the the melting snow comes down and, and then flows out. But this is actually the source of the Jordan River. Now, originally, the village of Dan, before being called Dan by the Israelites, it was called Baalias, a place where the god Baal is worshipped, the pagan god Baal. Later, when the Greeks conquered the area and took over the village, they found a little cave near the river and Someone said, this looks like the sort of place where the god Pan perhaps could have been born. Pan, of course, was a god who had taken the form of a man. And so the place was renamed Panias. But after the Greeks, there was a period when the Romans came and it was renamed again after the Roman Caesar, who of course was a man who took on the form of a god, and it was renamed by Philip, the region's governor, a son of Herod, so it was called Caesarea Philippi. The Romans built a gleaming white marble temple at this place, and in the form of Roman worship, it was, of course, a pantheon, pan meaning many, theon or theos meaning gods, a place of many gods. So here was this place with a history of the worshipping of different gods centred on a temple where many gods were worshipped, and this was the place, a place of religious plurality to which Jesus took his disciples to ask a question, a place where some believe God had taken on the form of a man like Pan. Others believe that a man took on the form of the gods like Caesar, a place where a temple stood that loudly proclaimed there is no particular deity. Rather, there are lots of different gods, a place of deep mystery. And Jesus took his disciples here and said, now I have a question for you. First, first question, who do people say that I am? In this place of crossover between humanity and divinity, who do people say 
that I am. And his disciples said, well, there are a few theories going around. Some people think you're far too wise and powerful to have lived only once. And so they're proposing that perhaps you bear the spirit or are somehow a rebirth of John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the great prophets from the Old Testament. It's an interesting theory, says Jesus. But, and after he says but, I can imagine him squaring the mob, looking directly into their eyes, perhaps even lowering his voice a little. But who do you say that I am? One of the most important questions we can answer is the question, who is Jesus? Who do I believe Jesus is? Perhaps it's the most important question that's ever been posed in the history of the world. Who is Jesus? And as you answer that question, there's no point having a second-hand opinion. You might have the opinion your parents taught you or one that you heard in a sermon or read in a book or gleaned from a movie, maybe even one that you constructed out of a lecture series on the New Testament. But Jesus, regardless of what your opinion might be, always presses a little deeper and says, yes, but what do you really think? What's your conviction? What's your bottom line in relation to me? What do you believe deeply enough that it will shape and influence and flavor your life, your words, your actions, that it will become an unflinching confidence, even a certainty, a center out of which you live? Now, Peter had an answer to this question. I'm sure you've noticed reading the Gospels, Peter was no shrinking violet. He would often put his mouth in gear before his brain was engaged, as it's sometimes said. And it got him into trouble plenty of times. He'd just blurt out whatever he was thinking. But on this occasion, what he blurted out happened to be the right answer. He said, in essence, I think I've got this. Jesus, you're not a person. You're the person. You're not a prophet. You're the prophet. You're the Christ, the Christos, the anointed one. You are the Messiah. And you probably need to be Jewish to understand the implications of naming the Messiah, the one who for centuries had been promised by God, the one who embodied the hopes, not just of a nation, but of humanity, uh, and certainly of a nation whose history had involved one defeat and subjugation after another for hundreds and hundreds of years. But with this hermeneutical or this interpretive key The door was unlocked and they saw the truth, or at least they saw more of the truth than they previously had. Can you see the parallel between the two stories? In both stories, sight is progressively developed. First one, the blind man receives his physical sight gradually, and in the second, the disciples receive their spiritual understanding gradually. In his very helpful book, entitled Conversion in the New Testament, Richard Peace makes the point that true Christian conversion and anyone doing evangelism, conversion and the mission of God at the moment is probably smiling because it's one of this week's readings. He says that Christian conversion is usually a progressive process rather than a punctilia event. And he suggests that the disciples couldn't have been truly converted until after the resurrection. Because only then could they begin to track and work out the implications of Jesus' true identity. But here, 
in this moment, they took a huge step forward. Many of the Markan commentators refer to the messianic secret, which is conceived a little differently today from the way it was by its um, originator, William Vreda, back in 1901, uh, which describes that motif most obvious in the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus keeps telling people to be quiet about his messianic mission. He says that both to the blind man that he heals. He says, don't go back into the village. I don't want people knowing what's happened to you. And the text says he sternly orders his disciples when Peter blurts out, you're the Messiah, not to tell anyone about him. Now, there are all sorts of reasons why he may have done that. But perhaps in this context, the most obvious is that he knew the word Messiah needed to be redefined in the popular imagination. And that was certainly true for Peter. See, all of Peter's life, he had been trained to think of the Messiah in terms of an irresistible conqueror, someone who, at a human level, would decimate Israel's enemies, who would wield power like a sword, who would be great and famous and glorious. And so when Jesus says, Peter, you're right, I am the Messiah, now let me tell you how I'm going to have to, in that role, suffer and how I'm going to die, there's no wonder that poor old Peter couldn't cope with that. His mind flashed up a picture of the conquering Messiah that he'd been trained to think about all his life, and then all of a sudden there's this introduction of a suffering Messiah, and there's really only one of those that makes sense to him. And he says, no, you're not going to suffer, Jesus. You're the Messiah. Let's get this straight. Let's sort this out. And Jesus turns around and says to him, Quite an incredible thing. He says, get behind me, Satan. Sounds a little harsh to us, doesn't it? I think Jesus was indicating that Peter was putting into words the very temptations that the devil had used to try and derail Jesus' ministry in the wilderness. For the temptation there was to avoid the cross, to not do things God's way, to take a shortcut that aligns with the world's status quo but denies God's redemptive purpose. It's fairly sobering to think that even a well-meaning and sincere friend can sometimes voice the very temptations that the devil himself would want us to hear. So Jesus thinks to himself, wow, Peter really missed the mark on that one. This is a point that I'm going to have to clear up with everybody once and for all. So he calls his disciples together. The text says he also calls the crowd in on this one as well. And he does something that runs contrary to the doctrine of every modern motivational speaker. He actively discourages people from being his followers unless they are prepared to pay the cost. And of course, that sort of honesty has always been a characteristic of great leaders. When he assumed the prime ministership of England in the Second World War, Winston Churchill only offered the people blood, toil, sweat and tears. Garibaldi, the great Italian patriot, appealed for recruits with these words. He said, I offer neither pay nor quarters nor provisions. Instead, I offer hunger, thirst, forced marches, battles, and likely death. Let him who loves his country in his heart, and not only with his lips, let him follow me. Following Jesus, it's been said, is more like a crown of thorns than a bed of roses. 
Jesus didn't come to offer people a nice, easy, comfortable life. He came to turn the world upside down, actually to turn it the right way up. And as we seek and trust God, and as he transforms our hearts, as he builds those transformed people into living and vibrant communities that have the potential to change the world, we get to join in with that agenda. And so we need to hear Jesus' words about this. If anyone wants to become my follower, says Jesus, let them deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Deny themselves, take up their cross, follow me. Deny yourself. Say no to what you want. Say no to self. Take the capital I am the most important person in my life and cross it out. Deny yourself, take up your cross, align yourself with the cross's redemptive purpose. Receive and then share the grace and the love and the forgiveness that Jesus' cruciform action embodies and then follow Jesus, which I don't think means to try and imitate Jesus in your strength, asking what would Jesus do every moment of every day. That's likely to fail. It may succeed in turning you into a Pharisee, but I think little else. Rather, following Jesus means going with Jesus, being with Jesus, to be in relationship with him, to spend time with him, to listen to him speak through his word, to daily invite his spirit to have his way in your life and to live out of the reality of his transforming presence with you and in you so that it's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. I was reading recently about a missionary who was killed by bandits in Africa. Shortly before her death, she was asked about the danger that she faced as she walked through dangerous roads and tracks, often alone. She was asked if she was ever afraid to die. And her answer was, I actually died 10 years ago when I gave my life to Jesus Christ. A few weeks later, she was killed for the contents of her handbag. But you know, her life wasn't taken from her in that action. Her life, her real life, was hid with God in Christ, to quote Colossians 3.3. For those who want to save their life, says Jesus, will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will find it. Now, losing your life doesn't mean that you have to physically die Losing your life in the vast majority of the church's history has more often meant giving your life in service to God and to others. The latest McCrindle report uh, has come out in the last month or so. In it, 400 Australian Christians were asked to define the good life. How would you define the good life? Here are the top four answers. Number one, achieving financial independence. Number two, owning your own home. Number three, being well regarded by your peers. And number four, going on international holidays. Those were the top four responses. Amongst the lowest responses were making a positive impact on your local community. Even lower was making a positive impact on the wider world. When compared to a random sample of a thousand Australians, there was little observable difference between those who went to church and those who didn't in terms of how the good life is defined. Very sobering. We've got some work to do, Paul. You've got some work to do. (laughs) 
if you live totally focused on yourself, by the end of your life, you may have lots of stuff, but you'll have very little that matters. Certainly nothing you can take with you. Very little that makes life worth living. If, however, you orientate your life so that you first love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and then love your neighbor as yourself, you will have more life than you know what to do with. The essence of life is not in saving it, not in hoarding it. It is in risking life, in spending life, in giving life. Keep your life, you lose it. Lose your life and you keep it. I've come, said Jesus, that you might have life, life in all its fullness. And here in Mark 8, Jesus very kindly tells us how to access that life. Ask him to open your eyes. Realize who he is. And then in the power of his spirit, follow him. Sounds like the gospel to me. Wouldn't it be great if Trinity College Queensland was known for its embodiment of that grand announcement of who Jesus is and what he's done, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, there's so much in this passage, so much that we haven't had time or opportunity to explore. But for now, we just want to pray that you would allow us to hear you, Jesus, address us. Because we are coming to you much like the blind man, longing for kindness in the midst of our brokenness, needing to be led and needing to be healed, needing to, like the disciples, have our spiritual sight restored to better understand who you are so that we can deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow you. Lord, we pray that Trinity College Queensland, under Paul's leadership, would become known as a place that names Jesus Christ as the Messiah, incarnate, crucified, risen and ascended, Lord of all creation. But we also pray that reality would be embodied in each of us, which we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.